0: People sometimes do quip, I have nothing to hide. That's usually not actually the case. Most people do have things that they want kept private, and rightfully so. By now,
1: most of us know that when we use apps on our phones, some information is getting stored and possibly shared with advertisers. But over the last year and a half, The Washington Post has been looking into a story that shows just how vulnerable that data really is. And Who can access it?
2: This is one of the first times we've heard of a private group buying data to identify people doing something that they don't approve of.
1: And this all started with a scandal in the Catholic Church. A prominent priest, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, was mysteriously outed for being a regular on Grindr, the gay dating and hookup app. Here's religion reporter Michelle Borstein.
2: A Catholic news site called The Pillar reported that Monsignor Jeff Burrell, who was General Secretary of the Catholic Bishops' Conference at the time, was activating the dating and hookup app grinder on a regular basis. Critics of The Pillar noted that in their reporting, it never showed if he actually had spoken to or met with anyone through the app. But given the church's teachings on homosexuality and priestly celibacy and questions around data privacy, the whole thing just blew up.
1: Burl stepped down from his leadership role in the church, and it seemed like that was that. But Michelle wanted to know who
3: had gotten that data from Grinder and how. I think this is less of an outlier situation and the first in sort of many that we're going to see in coming years. Michelle brought in our colleague Heather Kelly to help investigate. She's a tech reporter for The
1: Post, and she says our data may not be as private as we'd like to think.
3: What happens is all these apps, they've claimed for a long time, yes, yes, we're collecting your data. We know your location, your interest, your demographics, your device ID, but it's it's anonymous. We don't connect it to your name, and therefore you're safe. And what researchers have been warning about for years is, If you have this much information about a person, you don't really need their name. You can see where they sleep. You can see where they work. You can connect those dots and re-identify them. And that is what's happened here. Somebody got this data and was able to connect the dots. And it's something that really anybody with the resources and the know-how could be able to do given the lack of privacy laws right now.
1: Michelle and Heather learned through their reporting that a group of conservative Catholics had a role in outing Burl, and their efforts didn't stop there. This secretive group has poured around $4 million into a data project that identified priests who were using dating and hookup apps. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Chris Velasco. It's Tuesday. March 21st. Today on the show, we dive into who is behind this effort to identify gay priests, and we break down what we know about how they got access to Grindr data. Plus, what all of this means for data privacy and what we can do to protect ourselves in the absence of government regulation. Michelle and Heather spoke to my colleague, Arjun Singh. Michelle,
4: Who is this group that's been investigating priests? Uh,
2: The group that's been investigating priests has been operating under a nonprofit called Catholic Laity and Clergy for Renewal, which was created in June of 2019. This group is organized by conservative Catholics in the Denver area who are concerned and highly prioritizing the issue of priestly celibacy. After they opened in June 2019, they had hired a man named Jade Henricks who worked for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is the bishops' organization. It's kind of their industry group. And so he was brought on so that the group could take this data that they had acquired and I believe continued to acquire after that and get it in the hands of bishops so that they would be able to identify priests who were on dating and hookup apps. In our reporting, we we reached out to the three men who are the trustees of the group and Jade Henricks, who is the president of the group, and told them what our reporting was finding and asked them, can you tell us about the group? Does it do anything else in addition to data? Um, what motivates you? What did you find? That sort of thing. And they initially hired a public relations firm to reach out to us and asked us to Give them a little bit more time to get something together, and then didn't respond after that. And then the next day, we saw a blog post by Jade Hendricks that said that the group does more than just collect this dating and hookup app information that they have done other research about clerical life, that they want to support the health of priests and help bishops help their priests be healthy, including on issues of sexuality. We haven't seen that in our reporting, including an audio tape of Mr. Henricks describing the group that doesn't mention any of those other things. But he did write a post on First Things saying that this was just kind of something that they had stumbled across the data, that it wasn't their purpose.
4: Is this group specifically looking for people who had downloaded gay dating apps or dating apps in general?
2: So here's what, what we know the laity and renewal organization somehow acquired a bunch of data and that that data had different information in it from different apps. And we do know that in the data that they had, there were some apps that serve straight people like OkCupid okay and that kind of thing. We, But the vast majority of it was about Grindr, which is a, a dating and hookup app that that gay men use. That fits with the reporting that we did about what their goals and concerns are. They These are people who have spoken a lot about the church liberalizing its teachings about homosexuality, about, um, you know, just traditional mores. When we went to them and said, hey, this is what we know. Can you tell us more about your concerns, your interests, your priorities, what you found, et cetera, they produced a blog post that said— this is not about gay and straight. We're concerned about celibacy, priestly vows, and supporting priests and keeping their vows. So if somebody handed them a set that was almost all straight data, um, would they have done the same thing with it? We don't know.
4: Heather, what is exactly the data then that they are getting from these apps, and exactly how are they able to acquire that data? Is it from Grindr itself?
3: So the digital advertising world is sort of a very complicated ecosystem. The most basic way, Grindr sells this kind of data to ad brokers and ad exchanges. What an ad exchange is, it's like the stock market, but for people who want to buy ad space. So it's real-time bidding on this kind of data that doesn't have people's names, but has location information, and other sensitive data. So the data that's included when you get this is going to be the type of phone, the model of the phone, your IP address, which is pretty unique to a lot of people. And in this case, it showed specific apps that were being used, the latitude and longitude of when they were used, and the date and times. And so together, really, when you have all this information that's just meant to be able to target an ad to a specific audience, In other hands, they were able to use it to really find out who individual devices belong to.
4: Well, and Michelle, that's pretty limited information, I will say. So once this group has the information that someone maybe downloaded Grindr on their phone, how do they build a, a compelling case out of that? What is the argument that they're trying to make to other Catholics about these people?
2: So there's a few levels to it. One is they believe that they can use this information to share with bishops to say, we'll give you some information if you know anything else that will help cross-list this data we're giving you with where these priests might be, where they live or whatever. That could help you learn more about what they're doing, basically. Some of the people that we talked to for the article were like, there's nothing in Canon law that says you can't have an app on your phone. So the question is, what, you know, what were they going to do with the information? Either they could confront the priest, although I know from my reporting that, you know, bishops had conflicted feelings about their priests knowing that they had this data, but they're part of an ideological group that wants what they would call purifying the church, which includes less acceptance of gay relationships and gay marriage and gay life. It really varies, but that stuff is, is a very live debate in the U.S. Catholic Church.
4: Does this group not feel like the Catholic Church is taking this issue seriously enough? I'm wondering why they're taking it into their own hands rather than letting the church deal with their clerics in their own way.
2: Yeah, so that's that's an interesting answer. I mean, we're in a time when people are kind of blowing up institutions. So there's less respect for, and especially since the clergy sex abuse crisis exploded in 2002, it's been a process of, you know, we don't really trust these guys. So that's kind of going on in the backdrop. And then there was a really disturbing scandal that broke in 2018 when uh, then Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who was the Archbishop of Washington at one time, and like a really big you know, name in American Catholicism fundraising and kind of a prominent name was suspended after being accused of sexual misconduct with, with a altar boy decades earlier. And that kind of broke up in like this whole long story of how he was accused by men and also youth of misconduct and that people at the top over the decades had just looked the other way as this situation spiraled, and he continued to rise to the top of the Catholic Church. So that's one of the reasons, is there's been, since 2018, this special, like, wow, what a mess. You know, like, they covered up for McCarrick, and we can't trust them. But there's a big ideological split to that. I think the Church has struggled with holding accountable the people at the top. I think that's still still in effect as far as the sex abuse crisis goes.
4: Heather... Help me understand the privacy aspect of the story a little bit more. Like, how does data go from Grindr, if it's downloaded on my phone, into the hands of a conservative group like this?
3: It makes quite the journey. So let's start with your phone. Every app on your phone is collecting data about you at some point during the day. Whether or not they share it really varies by app and privacy policies, but all the apps are tracking you. Your phone is just a little, a little sponge that is soaking up details about your life. It knows where you are, what you're doing. It knows if you're asleep. <laughs> and what these apps do is they collect this data and they can either use it to just improve the experience of the app. A lot of them have a really good reason for it. Like a dating app uses your real-time location to show you people nearby if you want to meet up immediately. A weather app might want to show you the weather right where you are. A mapping app needs to know where you are. So there are legitimate reasons to collect this, right? But they can also then sell that same information so that people can serve ads to their readers or use that information for marketing, research, all sorts of things. So that data is worth money. And that's one reason why so many of these apps are free is because, as the old saying goes, you are the product. So these apps are going to sell this data without your name attached, claiming it's anonymous, and it's going to go to something called an ad exchange, which is, you know, this open marketplace where people can buy and sell data and try and buy ad space, basically. Data brokers are another player here, and they're also going to be buying a lot of that data. They'll be combining it or crunching it and reselling it. So to help me understand this, I reached out to Justin Sherman, who is a senior fellow at Duke university Stanford School of Public Policy.
0: There are virtually no regulations on data brokerage in the U.S., which means pretty much anybody, including predatory loan companies, even abusive individuals, can acquire this data to learn things about people, to even inflict harm.
3: Now, a lot of the bigger-name data brokers, they do have some rules, that say you need to be, say, certified by a certain industry organization if you want to be able to buy this data. But it's not required. And some of the shadier companies really have no problem selling it to anybody. And once you have that data, there's also no rules really on what you can do with it. There might be a policy that says, hey, you promise not to use this for anything, you know, super shady or or unethical. But it's just in writing. Again, it's not legally binding. Worst case scenario could be that that person does this in the future isn't allowed to make purchases anymore. So that's what's happening here is this, this information is being gathered for one reason, being sold for another, and profiting a whole bunch of people along the way.
4: Heather, I'm still trying to like wrap my head around exactly how this all works. Like what is being handed out and then sold by data brokers?
3: So it's entirely dependent on the apps. Some apps might take Information about you, about what you're watching or what you like or where you are. And they are going to sell that, but it will not have your name attached. It is allegedly anonymous.
0: Anonymization is not a technically meaningful term. It's a marketing term. The term anonymization implies that something is completely and totally protected and can never be linked back to someone. And that's just patently false.
3: Imagine you had a spreadsheet and it has lines for different devices, and it'll have some information about that device, what operating system. It's an iPhone, say, like an iPhone 11. Um, and we we kind of know your IP address. We know that you've opened, say, a specific app a certain number of times. It's going to have that information without your name attached to it. And I guess the industry has always kind of said, oh, this should make you feel better. Like, it's, it's not about you. Don't worry. Nobody's going to trace this back to you. Nobody's going to judge you for this. Um, and what we're discovering with with this example and other recent examples is that you can, in fact, with a little work, re-identify the person for this data.
4: Yeah, can you explain how you would take the information and make the leap to then peg it to a certain person?
3: Absolutely. So there's something called geofencing. So theoretically, somebody could go to a data broker and say, hey, I want all, you know, dating app pings for this area. And they're going to fence off um, maybe a a church. They're going to fence off that area and they'll get, you know, a big dump of data of all the pings of all the people who open data apps near that area with no names in it. So what this group is doing is they're looking to see who is pinging these apps kind of at the the time of night that would indicate they really lived at the rectories for a multiple number of nights in a row. And they're going to be like, okay, this device belongs to somebody who, who sleeps here overnight, who lives here. So now to find out who it is, let's see where else that same device pings. Now it might go to another home that belongs to their parents. That is public data. You can look up an address, find out who owns it and go, okay, now we figured out who this is. Or a person might go on a business trip. And you can see that they, you know, they went to San Diego and that's a ping on the same device of somebody who lives in the rectory. And you're going you're to be able to make a pretty solid conclusion about who you think that person is.
4: And what is the legality behind this? Is there any rules that regulate exactly how data can be used or who can purchase it?
3: As of right now, there are not a lot of laws that touch on this at all.
0: The U.S. lacks a strong federal privacy law. And most of the policy conversation in the U.S. stops at that first-party business you interact with. There's questions of, what does Google do with your data? What does the location uh, weather app do with your data? But it stops there, and we don't often go a step further to say, are they selling or sharing the data uh, after they collect it? And that's how a lot of these practices have been uh, unregulated. It comes back to this issue of data brokerage because there aren't controls on a lot of these companies selling and sharing even really sensitive information, they do it because they're able to make money off the sale.
3: There are some laws that protect children under 13 from certain types of data collection, and that's pretty much it on a federal level. So as far as I know, this isn't breaking any laws. It's it's perfectly legal.
4: Are there... Calls for more tightening of regulations around this stuff?
3: There is always a call for better regulation around privacy. There is rarely a follow-through. The most, I think, recent big thing to happen would be California passed some pretty stringent privacy laws, and it's pretty much a standout at that point. But even under those laws, I don't believe that this this is in any way violating them. It's, It's still completely allowed. There has been a push for a federal privacy law for a very long time. It, it seems like it could be picking up some momentum. Stories like this are what is going to make it pick up momentum.
4: And so then what does a company like Grindr say when a story like this comes out? And what is the reaction to the fact that data coming from their app could be used to, frankly, ruin people's lives?
3: So what's interesting about Grindr and this data in general, the the information that this group had was from 2018 to, I believe, 2021. And there were three separate sets of data in here that they're looking at. Now, in 2020, in January, Grindr stopped sharing GPS-level location data. So they actually have made a change to make this much harder to do in the future. Unfortunately, these old data sets still exist, and they can still be used to identify people based on their activities you know, in 2020 and before.
0: Many, many mobile apps are still very much selling location data. Uh, Mobile apps are a huge source of data for data brokers generally. If you're wondering, how does a data broker know my political preferences? How does a data broker know my health conditions? There are many sources, but a big pile of those sources uh, comes from mobile apps and the data that these developers are willing to sell to make an extra buck. Uh, and so even though some companies have made some claims about stopping the sale of location data due to congressional attention or media blowback or what have you, many, many apps still do it, and there's still no regulation preventing them from gathering and then selling this very intimate data on Americans.
3: So one thing you can take from that is that these apps, in general, all apps know that they could stop sharing precise geolocation data and really you know, lessen the risk of this kind of thing happening.
4: How often do we see instances of private groups of citizens buying this data and deploying it in an instance like the one you and Michelle reported on?
3: So that's why this story is so interesting and so important. This is one of the first publicly known incidences of a private group, not the government, buying data specifically to identify people for doing something they didn't like. Um, There are other examples of the government doing it. Um, the FBI recently admitted they had bought data in the past. But this is the first example of just, just a private group with enough money and a desire, desire to actually follow this through.
4: Yeah, and, you know, at least for me, and I think that I speak for a lot of people in saying that apps are very integrated into our day-to-day life, and it would be very difficult to disentangle a few core apps From how we go about living lives. But is there anything that we could do as cell phone users and app users to guard some of this data and maybe prevent it from coming back to haunt us?
3: Absolutely. And this is my favorite topic. There is so much you can do. And first of all, I understand that it's asking a lot of people to be in charge of their own privacy. This is a systemic issue, this shouldn't fall on individuals. But it is for now. And so here's what you can do. First of all, be very careful about what apps you're downloading on your phone. Make sure they're from reputable companies. And if you have something on your phone you haven't used in a long time and it's just sitting there, it might still be collecting data about you. Go ahead and delete it. That's the number one thing you can do. The number two thing is on both Android and iPhone, you can control whether or not you allow an app to collect precise location data. So you can go through all of your apps, and you can turn that off. You can revoke access, so they cannot have precise location data. They might have sort of broader location data. However, one funny thing is that the apps actually have other ways to get this. They might be able to figure out where you are from your IP address or other activities. But primarily, you can pretty much shut it down just in your own settings. It will impact how these apps work. So if you are using a dating app to find people nearby this is going to make that a little harder. It's going to make your weather a little less exact, but it is peace of mind. So those are the biggest things you can do. Unfortunately, the industry is so dead set on collecting this kind of data, of, of using it and serving ads, that they're always finding new ways to get it. And so staying one step ahead of them is extremely difficult without any kind of legislation in place.
1: After the break, Arjun talks with Heather and Michelle about what this all means for the Catholic Church, and the takeaways for all of us about our privacy online. We'll be right back.
4: Michelle, what is kind of the current stance in the Catholic Church regarding celibacy and priests? And is there a consensus around it or is it something that's being debated?
2: So Catholic, the Catholic Church teaches that priests make this promise of celibacy, which is, it basically means, you know, we always think about celibacy as not having sex. It technically means that they won't get married. And then they make... um They're required under church law to not have sex. So celibacy really means that you're not married. But it's also something that, you know, it's a huge part of Catholic life, this idea that this is a special spiritual discipline that is practiced for the good of the church and that people are married to the church. And, you know, it's a very— it's hard to imagine Catholic church without priests, right? So I guess I would say I think that— There's many Catholics who have left the Catholic Church over things like this, and then there are, there's Catholics who think it's a precious, wonderful part of the Catholic Church, and then there's people that, if it changed, they would understand it as well. I think priest sexuality is not discussed openly, and priests are probably the ones that suffer for that. There really isn't a lot of kind of open conversation about living a celibate life and what it entails and... How to achieve intimacy and the struggles that some of them have, and, and that kind of thing.
4: And Heather, what do you think a story like this says about data privacy right now, and the impact things like this could have on data privacy moving forward?
3: I think this shows that we've been largely relying on this this honor system to protect our privacy. This, oh, we can let the industry regulate itself. They promise nothing will happen. We don't need laws. And this worst-case scenario happening, even if you know, you're you not particularly invested in this exact example, it, it is an idea of something that could happen to anybody. An employer could do this to their employees. A different religious group could use it to try and find people who are seeking abortions or transitioning. There are so many examples of ways this could be used that this might just be the first kind of warning sign that this is possible. So, I think for, it's, it should be a wake up call for people concerned about privacy, for people who maybe weren't concerned about privacy, and they're, they're going to be now, and hopefully some regulators to look deeper into the entire industry and how it's run.
1: Heather Kelly and Michelle Borstein are reporters for The Post. We'll share a link to their reporting in our show notes. They spoke with my colleague, Arjun Singh. That's it for Post Reports. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis and edited by Maggie Penman with help from Lucy Perkins. If you found this reporting insightful, please leave us a review in your podcast app. It really helps other people find us. I'm Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses.